I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hi everyone, we're back and Dr. George Simon is with us and we're going to talk about the different types or kinds of narcissism. Dr. Simon, thank you for enlightening all of us about this. (laughs) Well, thank you, Kristen. I'm so happy to be here with you and, and talking about this very important topic. So tell us, give us an idea of uh, what, what different types of narcissism there is. Um, You know, we used to think basically that all narcissistic individuals were suffering from impaired self images, that they had low self-esteem, that they were insecure, um, that uh, they were anxious about their image and therefore Uh, This need that we saw that they had, this apparent need that we assumed that they had for being adulated and for being seen as either powerful or competent or whatever the case may be, was uh, was really a compensatory thing. It was a it was a cover for their underlying insecurities and feelings of low self-worth. And we now know that this can indeed be a kind of narcissism. In other words, we we do know that some narcissists uh, can be the way they are because of these factors. But we also recognize, and I recognize this very, very early in my clinical research. As a matter of fact, when I first wrote uh, In Sheep's Clothing and uh, when I subsequently wrote uh, Character Disturbance, Uh, In both of those books, I pointed out that there were two very, very different kinds of narcissism that I'd encountered. And now the clinical research has uh, has backed that up. The empirical research uh, gives the two types of narcissism different labels from the labels that I give them in my books. But they're they're still uh, they recognize uh, anyway, two very different types of narcissism. Uh, And uh, the kind of narcissism that the empirical literature calls uh, the more grandiose type as opposed to the vulnerable or compensatory type, uh, the the grandiose type 
is a very, very different kind of narcissism. And it's rooted in two things, primarily. An impaired capacity for empathy and an impaired capacity for shame. And these two uh, qualities are, are part of a healthy conscience, which is also lacking in this type of narcissism. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's the hallmark feature of all character disturbance is an impaired or sometimes chillingly absent conscience. Right. So um, this kind of narcissism is a very different kind of narcissism. Uh, sometimes individuals who are unconsciously driven to uh, brag about themselves because they feel so insecure underneath are so unaware of what they're doing and so unaware of how they alienate people that when they when when reality hits them in the face and they realize how badly they've offended folks they get upset by it they get unnerved by it and they actually try to reinvent themselves they uh, they they try to repair the damage because they want to be seen favorably they want to look good and they want to be regarded well so they uh, they try to cover their tracks. They've, they, they've messed up. They went too far uh, and they and alienated the folks that they really wanted to have adulation from. So um, these kinds of narcissists behave very, very differently. The more callous, conscious, conscience-less and uh, lacking in empathy and lacking in shame, narcissists are a very, very different animal. They, uh, they are under-socialized to a pathological degree. Nobody else really matters, except insofar as how they might use that person to e amass even more power and glory for themselves um, or serve their needs in some way. So... Uh, it's the lack of capacity to feel any genuine regard for another and to feel the pain of another and to understand it and care about it. It's the inability to care that really distinguishes this other kind of narcissist. Uh, and also no sense of shame. You know, for a long, long time, psychology had it very, very wrong about shame. We know that shame and guilt are two very different things. Guilt has to do with what I did, and shame has to do with who I am. And for years and years and years, all the pop psychology books were telling folks, it's okay to feel badly about what you did, but it's not okay a bit to feel badly about who you are. And I've got to tell you, perhaps no message that we gave to the public as a profession was as damaging as that one. Yeah, that just rang a bell for me. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, absolutely now, can, not true. <laughs> can you have shame that is so tox toxic to your self-image that it makes you feel worthless? And, uh, and to doubt that you have any validity? Absolutely. So some shame can be at toxic levels. But does that mean all shame is bad and that uh, all of us should have no shame whatsoever? 
No, it doesn't mean that. We've had it really wrong about that. And the, 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 the thing that really is at the heart of the malignant narcissist or the grandiose narcissist or the or what Theodore Milan, one of the preeminent personality researchers of, of our times, calls the unprincipled narcissist, is that they 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 so lack any care or concern for others, they're so lacking in the ability to care, so lacking in empathy capacity, and so lacking in a sense of shame that it doesn't bother them at all to do the horrendous things they do. They don't become unnerved. It doesn't shake them up. It doesn't keep them up at night. It doesn't cause them any anxiety. The thing that might perturb them a little bit is if they sense their power uh, being threatened or they sense their image being threatened and uh, we call this a narcissistic insult. And when they feel narcissistically insulted, they are going to lash out because it can't be their fault. It has to be somebody else's fault. Um, and they will lash out uh, and bully and uh, berate uh, and demean, especially demean. They, they love to show their disdain. They don't hesitate to show their disdain. Um, and we see this big time. We see this not only in the tweets that we. I was just going to say Twitter, Twitter. <laughs> this, this is textbook. Yeah. I mean, you, you couldn't write a clearer text and a set of examples of just what we're talking about here when it comes to this kind of pathology. And I have to say the prognosis for narcissists of this ilk is a lot poorer, is very, very right. poor. Um, because by and large, by and large, this strategy in our culture, I want to qualify that. And, and this is something that we have to come to terms with. We have, you know, there's a concept in, 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 um, in behavioral sciences that applies to addictions called enabling, whereby the person with the addiction problem uh, is kind of rescued by other family members from this and that bad consequence. And therefore that enables them to continue with their maladaptive behavior. Yes. The, the person saving them doesn't mean to do harm. They only mean to do good. They only mean to protect their family. They only mean to uh, prevent horrible things from happening to the person with the addiction, but inadvertently, they only help perpetuate the behavior. That's the concept of enabling. Well, this is what's happened in our culture as it's structured. The principles that it really operates on, not the principles that we talk so gloriously about and claim that we hold dear, but the principles that we actually operate on, um, they enable not only this kind of behavior, but they even reinforce and reward it. Um, so it works. It works, or it appears to work at least, uh, for a large number of folks. Uh, and so we have these more malignant narcissists uh, among us. And because their strategies appear to be working and because they have such a lack of uh, an innate lack of care 
and an innate lack of shame don't really give a darn um, what other people think uh, and so readily condemn anyone who would criticize them, uh, getting to them in any meaningful way is probably the most difficult task on earth. It is. And how about those who, you know, they don't, they have this lack of empathy for others. They don't seem to have much of a lack of empathy for themselves. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they, you know, very everything, their entire brain is wired around them being the victim, even though they are victimizing others always. And those that take, they don't take pleasure in, you know, the normal things that people take pleasure in. They don't feel certain things, which is why they can do the, you know, things that they do that hurt people. But they do take pleasure in the hurt that they see they've caused other people. Like that is like a hit of feeling for them. Yeah. What What is that about? <laughs> you know, in, uh, in real estate, they say that there are only three things that matter. Location, location, and uh, let's see, location. Uh, and in my training workshops, I uh, tell um, the, the audience that for folks of this ilk, uh, there are only three things that matter. Position, position, and position. Hmm. They're nearly consumed with their position relative to anyone or anything else. And they always want to be in the cat, the catbird seat. They always want to be in that position of power or dominance or control. Uh, and they will fight tooth and nail to maintain that position. So here's the dirty little secret that can occur. You know, I said that dealing with these kinds of individuals is the, probably the most challenging enterprise on earth. But um, because I know I know two things about helping really seriously flawed characters change. I've learned these two things. I know that position is everything. I know that it is everything. And because it is everything, I remember that in my encounters because every encounter is a potentially therapeutic encounter. It's not necessarily a miracle working encounter, but it's a potentially therapeutic encounter. Okay, what do you and, mean by that? And only position matters. So I know that. And then secondly, I know that it's a lot easier to act your way into a new way of thinking about things than it is to think your way into a new way of acting. And it's a lot more efficacious too. So instead of trying to reason with anybody, what I focus on is what's going on in the dynamics of the relationship and all the positioning that the, the person is doing. And I deliberately throw monkey wrenches into it. I deliberately jam up the gears. Hmm. I deliberately do everything I can to mess up the position jockeying game. 
Can you give an uh, example? Yeah. For example, if someone who I suspected had moderate motivation, let's say they were coming in under pressure from a spouse, um, and I deemed that they were fairly malignantly narcissistic. In other words, they had a really impaired uh, uh, capacity to give a darn anyway, and they had uh, virtually no sense of shame, which is why they'd done all the horrible things they'd done. But yet they're there. They're under some kind of minimal motivation, and it's mostly under external pressure. Um, the first thing that I would do, because, because I, they're going to want to be in a position of power with me. In other words, they're going to be wanting to say, you know, basically, what is it you think you can really do for me? That's, that's going to be their approach. So my retort to that generally would be right from the get-go. Um, basically, I'm not sure uh, that you either warrant or can afford my services. <laughs> In other words, I turn the table right off the bat and suggest um, that I might not work with them unless they're willing to pay a very, very high price. It reverses the position right away. That's tactical and it's therapeutic. Um, and I have to say it works more often than not. And when you, when I understand the tactical piece, I can, I can hear listeners' questions on my own coming up. What piece about that is therapeutic? Um, because it gives them a one trial experience in taking a different position. Ah, okay. In other words, this is what I was saying earlier. What we do in the appropriate kinds of therapeutic interventions for folks with serious character disturbances is we teach them to act their way into a new way of thinking. Mm. You have to do differently than you usually do to eventually have the light bulb go off in your head. Aha, maybe there's an advantage to a different approach. But you have to do differently first. You can't reason with somebody. You can't try to convince them that their way of doing things is not healthy and that they should change them. That does not work. Yes, it's funny. I didn't. Do, do you know who Dr. Jim Fallon is? No, I don't. He, um, he is a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist, and he wrote a book about how he had done a PET scan and found out that he has the genetic correlates of a prosocial psychopath. And he wrote a book about it and has done TED Talks and things like that. And um, he talked about this. And when I did a show with him, um, I said, he said, you know, I just, I, I had to use my own narcissism in order to behave better. So the act your way. And he said, but, you know, I find it exhausting. Mm. <laughs> he was very honest. He said, I can't imagine being you and how much you actually care. <laughs> I thought, my God, I hope people hear what's really going on in this interview. <laughs> it was utterly fascinating. Yeah. And once again, you, you illustrate with that example 
that it's not a matter of awareness. And this is this is the horrendous mistake that about 90% of counselors of various persuasions will make. We, we are trained to want to work people to help them to see. Right. And this is how we operate. And some of us are so grandiose about it. Some of, some of us get downright delusional. We think we're going to be that person who puts a, a person's life and their circumstances out in front of them in such a beautifully poetic way, with such articulateness that they look at us and they say to us, oh, my goodness, no one has ever put it to me just that clearly or that way before. Oh, I see it now. Oh, thank you. So that never happens. <laughs> that never happens. But most clinicians think it's going to happen somehow. And so they try to reason with people. They try to illuminate them. They try to get them to see when, in fact, they already see quite a bit. The problem is not that they see, as I say in my workshops, the problem is that they disagree. Um, and the problem is not that they are not aware. The problem is they don't care. And right. so what you have to do is interfere with the way they typically want to relate uh, and um, get them to try something different. Interesting. And then they'll see at an entirely different level. It's an, it's a, it's an experiential kind of insight that they come by, that there may actually be a benefit to doing some things differently, even though, as your friend uh, suggests, they may find it exhausting because it is so un it is so unnatural. Yes. It is so unnatural. So they have to fake it until they make it. They have to push themselves until it becomes more second nature. And that requires a lot of reinforcement for their efforts. And that's where another that's another mistake a lot of clinicians uh, make because they don't like and no, nor do relationship partners like seeing these seriously disturbed folks get any credit for or any reward for the small baby steps they have to take to be better people. Right. Because they we figure we shouldn't have it. to do that. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. should we should we figure we shouldn't have to uh, reinforce grown people. We're taking positive pro-social steps. But in fact, you know, that's where they are in their stage of development. And that's what they need. Oh, that's so true. Oh, very interesting. That's fascinating. I'm going to ponder about that for the rest of this week. And even with people that, you know, were raised in narcissistic, malignant, narcissistic households, and they didn't become one. Uh, they were scapegoated or, you know, whatever it means and they're high empathy and they go around, you know, feeling like they are second class citizens and all the things that, you know, were were enacted upon them in their childhood to even see that differently as well. You could apply these same things to them because I've said this to my ex-husband. Well, if you're raised by wolves and nothing against wolves as the animal, but just the saying, if you're raised by wolves, where do you learn how nice, empathetic, caring people behave? You have to figure that out as an adult. <laughs> exactly right. And, <laughs> and it's and baby what, steps. What men are, many intervening professionals forget is that every encounter, every encounter is potentially therapeutic depending on the nature of the encounter. 
And we have control over what we do in that encounter. Uh, and we have control over what we reinforce and what we encourage uh, in that encounter. And we can, we can subtly and progressively lead people in directions that they've not gone before and reinforce their steps in those directions. Mm. That's what makes this kind of therapy very, very, very different. Um, and uh, I, I, you know, I, in, in the interest of time here, let me just muse about a little fantasy here, show, just to give you how it would work tactically. Let's just say, let's just say that the world is closing in all around him, and the president should realize that the jig is pretty much up, and in a last-ditch um, effort to save the all-important position, position position, he should uh, contact me through the blog and say, you know, I think I might need some help here. Um, my fantasy would be, of course, that of the, the, the necessary tact would have to be, uh, number one, I'm not sure you could afford it. Even as wealthy as you are, I'm not sure you could afford it. And number two, I'm just not sure you have it within you to do it. Hmm. Now that would be the bait. <laughs> that would be the bait. <laughs> well, fascinating. Thank you so much for coming back on. We will explore more listeners. These are nuggets. There's so many nuggets. I, I was, I had to stop myself from scribbling in my notebook because you'd hear it with a new mic that I have. But <laughs> Dr. George Simon, thank you for coming on again and talking about character matters on Mental Health News Radio. Thank you, Kristen. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous. And they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial.